On this week's edition of New York Now, early voting has been available to New Yorkers since 2019, but has increased access to the polls improved voter turnout? New York State continues to grapple with the Supreme Court's overturning of Roe versus Wade. We'll ask Republican State Senator Phil Boyle his ideas on the direction of policy related to the funding of abortions in New York. And we'll dig into the week's news more with Dave Lombardo of the Capitol Press Room and Josh Solomon from the Times Union's Capitol Bureau. I'm Casey Seiler, and this is New York Now. Today, the Senate majority will pass legislation. I will fight like hell for you every single day, like I've always done and always will. Hi, and welcome to this week's edition of New York Now. I'm Casey Seiler, editor-in-chief of the Times Union, in for Dan Clark. The June 28th primary election set the ballot for New York's governor's race, but voter turnout was low. What does that low level of participation say about the health of our democracy, and are the investments New York has made in providing early access to the polls worth it when voters don't show up? New York Now partnered with the Times Union's Brendan Lyons, managing editor for investigations and Capitol Bureau chief, to examine the effectiveness of early voting in New York. Take a look. Since 2019, New Yorkers have had the option to vote early in elections. Early voting was intended to increase voter turnout and improve access to the polls. But there were more ballots cast in early voting last year, even though there were no statewide races. Early voting is new. So the first time we had early voting was November of 2019. And then the pandemic crisis hit us. There were major shifts in how people voted uh, during the pandemic that during the 2020 primaries, uh, the percentage of people casting uh, votes by absentee ballot uh, skyrocketed. And so did the turnout for early voting. So we're still in a phase where we don't have a lot of historical data in New York in order to predict you know, what is a good early voting turnout and, and what is a poor turnout. The biggest problems uh, with early voting are making sure that sites are fairly distributed. It really is essential that that site is located in a central location that is easy to access for, you know, everyone. New York's early voting legislation requires polls to be open for nine days with at least one early voting location for every 50,000 registered voters in a county. Early voting sites must be open with a minimum number of hours set by the state, depending on whether it's a weekday or weekend. Counties pay for the poll workers and in some cases need to rent polling sites. Implementing the rules has presented challenges for many counties. The counties are getting much better but the legislature still had to step in to make additional rules this year because a couple of counties uh, were egregiously violating the spirit of the early voting statute. The counties that have the largest number of early voting sites also tend to have the higher early voting turnout. So the convenience of a early voting sites does appear to be a significant factor in whether people are going to use early voting. And of course, the whole purpose of early voting is to make it more convenient for the voter. So the voter is not locked into 
having to go on the day designated for elections. You know, it's the end of the school year, there's graduations, moves up, you know, so parents are maybe still busy. I don't know how long this early voting goes for, but I hope that people do take advantage of it. I think it's, I think it's great. I will go say thank God, but that's my speech, that we have early voting before the time of the primary voting come in. Everybody need to come down here and vote early, get it over with, get it done. Across the state, roughly 14% of the voters in the June 28th primary had cast their ballots using early voting polling sites. That's according to unofficial numbers from the State Board of Elections. For Smitka, it's not about numbers, but access. Any vote cast during the early voting time period makes early voting worth it. Um, and any additional time that we can provide people to again get that access to the polls who might not otherwise have been able to get there makes the process worth it and ensures that we have a democracy in which every single person has the ability to participate. A review of the costs associated with keeping polling sites open for more than a week shows a variation in the price per vote. Fulton County was $33, Rensselaer County $13, Saratoga County $19, and Albany County came in at $65 per vote. In Cortland County, the cost per vote was $1,500 for the few hundred voters who took advantage of early voting. Ed McDonough, the Democratic Elections Commissioner in Rensselaer County, said it isn't worth it. He said it's difficult to find people willing to staff polling sites for nine days, and as he put it, wait for nobody to come in. A cost between $10 and $25 per voter um, for uh, conducting the live election is um, reasonable. But when you start to get costs that work out above $25 per voter, then I think it's appropriate to take a hard look and say, well, is this really cost effective? Elections do have a cost uh, that goes with them, and sometimes you just have to swallow hard and bear that cost. Figuring out the cost equation is critical, and it's hard to draw general conclusions about the cost of early voting and how they balance with New Yorkers' right to access the ballot box. If early voting goes away, it will disproportionately affect those who historically have had the most difficulty getting to the polls on election day. So that's people who do shift work, people who use public transportation, um, people who might have mobility impairments that make it difficult for them to, to get to the polls. They might need to arrange a ride. Uh, people who might not have childcare set up on within those voting hours on election day. Um, really anybody who doesn't necessarily have a flexible schedule, it can be hard to get to the polls on one single day. For smaller turnout elections, like primary elections or special elections, maybe nine days of early voting is overkill. The county boards of elections, as they gain experience, should also adjust their staffing according to the anticipated turnout. The idea is to run it like a business. So if you go to the local hamburger joint, uh, they may be open from 6 a.m. until 9 p.m., but they don't have the same staffing all day long. They will increase the staffing for the times that they expect it to be busier. And I would urge uh, the county election officials to look at that model and try to adjust their staffing accordingly. Erica Smitka, 
with the League of Women Voters said no matter how you choose to vote, early voting, vote by mail, or casting a ballot on election day, the important thing is to turn out for all elections. I hope that for some, you know, if you do see that voter turnout is low and you didn't make it to the polls that year, I hope it's a bit of a wake-up call because it really is those local elections where people have the most impact on what happens in their day-to-day -day lives. You know, your vote for your city council person is going to have a much greater impact on your day-to-day -day life than, you know, perhaps your, your vote on a larger national scale. So I want people to remember how important it is to show up for those local elections, uh, to let their voice be heard, and, you know, to use early voting as a way to do that. You can find the Times Union's reporting on early voting turnout at nynow.org and timesunion.com. And now for more analysis of the week's news, I'm happy to be joined at the Reporters' Roundtable by Josh Solomon of the Capitol Bureau of the TU mm -hmm. and Dave Lombardo of the Capitol Press Room. Great to see you. Thanks very much for coming in. All right, let's talk guns, uh, specifically Republican uh, pushback uh, to the uh, provisions that were signed into law just about a week ago by Kathy Hochul after the extraordinary session that, when last we met at this roundtable, uh, had not yet been passed. But the provisions include, of course, an expanded list of so-called sensitive places where uh, concealed carry and carry period will not be allowed, as well as significantly higher uh, bars for those who want a concealed carry permit. This, of course, all comes as a result of the Supreme Court decision in the case of two Rensselaer County men who were turned down for, uh, for a concealed carry permit. Yeah, I, I think that the, the Republican opposition was expected. And they had forecast that for a while. They obviously are very proud defenders of the Second Amendment. But they've already come out and said, we're going to sue on this. And the Republican Party chairman and the conservative party chairman uh, on Thursday made their announcement that they're working on it. And funny enough, uh, the opponent of Republican chairman Nick Langworthy in the congressional race, Carl Palladino, has also announced his plans to sue on uh, those gun laws. So we'll see what happens on how sturdy they are. But Democrats have said that the reason it took so long to put it together was they were making sure they had a sturdy foundation. And took so long is something that should probably go in air quotes, because this is a bill that was really rushed through the legislature. This isn't something where we had hearings. There wasn't a lot of public discussion. And so with an issue like this, with guns and legislation that's passing uh, at the dead of night in a rushed fashion, you're going to see two types of criticism. One is probably valid, because if you're rushing legislation, you're going to make mistakes. There's going to be the opportunity to screw things up. And then the other uh, issue is, when you're dealing with guns, there's going to be some sort of partisan pushback uh, automatically. It might not be legitimate, but you're always going to get that on guns. And that's kind of what we're seeing right now. There's aspects of this legislation that might actually be unconstitutional. We've seen in the past with the New York SAFE Act, legislation that was uh, rushed through dealing with guns, there were problems with it. Parts of it were thrown out by uh, judges. So I wouldn't be surprised if we see the same thing here. One provision that has especially aroused ire is a requirement if you want a concealed carry permit, you have to disclose all of your social media accounts. And that's something that is that is definitely of concern to Second Amendment uh, adherents. It, it's of concern to other people on First Amendment grounds as well. But I think where that was born out of was with the Buffalo shooter and 
the long trail and, and when we see these mass shootings, they often say, well, he posted it on his social media. How could you have not known? So that appears to be what the intent was. But nonetheless, people are, you know, uh, lawmakers, Second Amendment, First Amendment folks are concerned about what that means if you have to turn over your social media. How does that work? What about, you know, distant accounts? And, yeah. and it's, it's, it gets a little squishy pretty quickly. There's also concerns over where you can carry in the Adirondacks. Uh, State Senator Dan Steck has brought that up, and the administration hasn't been completely clear on it. The, the administration has said, um, look, nothing, nothing in this law would prevent you from normal things like hunting, and it really—that that inside the blue line, that's forest preserve, not essentially a public park, which is what Dan Steck and right. Elise Stefanik have been saying. But, but this law, though, we need to remember, is just the first step here. We need to have regulations that are still to come from the Hochul administration. State police, the DCJS, Division of Criminal Justice Services, are going to actually lay out the rules for where the rubber meets the road on this rule. So we are talking on what uh, is uh, supposed to be the last day of operation for the state Joint Commission on Public Ethics. And they are going out in classic Jacob fashion. On Thursday, they voted 10 to 1 with uh, Governor Cuomo's last, uh, former Governor Cuomo's last appointee to the panel, voting in opposition to the release of a report that was prepared by an outside law firm looking at how Jacob approved the uh, the governor's book deal, his mm -hmm. second book deal on his uh, his COVID memoir. What, Dave, did it reveal about that process? Well, if you are to believe this report, uh, which, you know, I, I find it questionable because this report lays out uh, an aversion of an administration that bullies people to get its way <laughs> and a ethics watchdog that doesn't have enough of a spine to stand up to said administration. So, I mean, Casey, I think we need to take this with a, a grain of salt. Uh, I'm not so sure I'm ready to buy all this. Dave, you're speaking with tongue-in-cheek. The, the report, seriously, mm -hmm. sort of suggests that Jacob's staff essentially worked almost yeah. as a, a kind of credulous an organ of the, of the executive chamber in the approval that they didn't ask enough questions about. Rushed it through. Yes, yeah, exactly. I, I mean, it, it's what we've expected from Jacob during its 10 years, uh, 11 years of, of existence that this was not an uh, autonomous uh, ethics watchdog, that it was here to basically rubber stamp uh, the wishes of its, uh, I guess, benefactors, the people who appointed it, and that it would go after people who were out of political favor or had no political power in Albany. And, uh, you know, the real question now moving forward is, with this new body that's going to replace Jacob, is this going to be something that will stand up to the administration? Does it have any sort of autonomy? That's what we'll have to see moving forward. All right, RIP, Jacob. All right, one last issue. Uh, Governor uh, Hochul and New Jersey's Phil Murphy signed a deal for the Gateway Tunnel Project, $14 billion. That's just the first outlay for a twin tunnel project connecting uh, the Garden State and the Empire State. Could this turn out to be sort of Governor Hochul's Tappan Zee Bridge, an emblematic big infrastructure project? She may want it to be. It's going to take a long time to build the tunnel but she'll be able to have opportunities during in the construction projects, all that type of space. But will it be the same type of bridge, same type of situation? That seems to be maybe a stretch there. But for now, she's going to push for it, especially while there's federal infrastructure money uh, from President Biden, and they want to push forward at least while they can. So Tappan Zee Bridge, Mario Cuomo Bridge, I'm, I'm not sure yet.
It, 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 a tunnel is not exactly the same kind of vaulting piece of infrastructure that a, that, that, a, that a big, beautiful bridge like that can be, right? Can't put it on a license plate, Casey. That's true. You can't. All right. Well, that's where we're going to have to leave it. So thanks very much to Josh Solomon from the Times Union's Capitol Bureau. And Dave, please stick around. Sounds good. Finally, the overturning of Roe v. Wade means states will decide whether they will preserve or deny access to an abortion. In New York, protections for legal abortion predate the original Roe v. Wade decision. In recent days, the Hochul administration has attempted to enshrine access to abortion in the state constitution, further strengthening those protections. On Thursday of this week, Governor Hochul provided a path for funds that would bolster security at reproductive health care centers across the state. Governor Hochul has stated that she intends for New York's comprehensive reproductive health services to be available to women and families whether they reside in New York State or not. And New York is likely to see an increase in out-of-state residents seeking abortion services in New York. That has some Republican legislators concerned about who would carry the cost. Dave Lombardo from the Capitol Press Room spoke to Republican Senator Phil Boyle from the 4th District. Boyle has proposed a bill that would prohibit the use of state funds for non-New York residents seeking an abortion within the state's borders. Well, welcome to the show, Senator. I really appreciate you making the time. Thank you, Dave. Thank you for having me here. So this spring, uh, Governor Kathy Hochul, uh, in anticipation of increased demand for New York abortion providers, directed $35 million to beef up the capacity of providers in New York, as well as improve their security uh, in anticipation of Roe v. Wade being overturned. You've introduced legislation that would restrict state spending for non-New York resident abortions. Can you talk about how your bill would work if uh, implemented? Sure. So, David, one thing I think people need to realize, obviously, despite the decision on Roe versus Wade, New York state is going to continue to be a pro-choice state. That is not changing. Uh, it's protected in state law now. Um, and also, another thing we can be pretty sure about is the fact that there's going to be a lot of women, women coming from uh, those states that are either banning or restricting abortions. Uh, my, I think my understanding was there's about 26 states that are going to either completely ban or restrict abortions. So it's very likely that women will be coming from those states to New York to uh, obtain abortions, which is their right. My bill is directed towards the idea of New York State taxpayers paying for those abortions. I could see, particularly with the, the, the left that's controlling a lot of much of the agenda in Albany, is the use of New York State taxpayer money to uh, fly women from Texas to Louisiana up to New York, uh, overnight hotel stays, uh, obtaining the abortion uh, procedure, and then flying it back to their state. Um, this could be done theoretically by the tens of thousands and will cost New York State taxpayers hundreds of millions of dollars or even billions of dollars over the course of years. And that's something is completely insane and unacceptable. So it sounds like your concern then is about cost and not necessarily, I guess, uh, respecting what other states have decided to do with regards to abortion measures? Well, I mean, I, I personally am opposed to the idea about them using New York uh, prosecutors or trying to prosecute women that come from their state. That's uh, that's their own law. I'm mostly concerned about the taxpayers of New York paying for that. Obviously, New York taxpayers have paid for abortions for many years through Medicaid. So uh, Medicaid funding from taxpayers in New York fund uh, abortions for indigent New York women. But this is a whole new ballgame. This is talking about New York state taxpayers paying for abortions for women who don't even live here. 
At this point, though, is there any indication that state policymakers like uh, the governor have plans to invest in maybe travel or accommodations for, for non-New York women seeking abortions? I know during the Democratic primary debate, uh, Governor Hochul was asked this specific question, and she said no to the idea of providing transportation. So is there anything that you're seeing uh, that's actually happening that would uh, prompt this bill to take effect, or is this more about future concerns? Well, I actually was working on this bill prior to the decision. I, we started working on it when the leak happened uh, a few months back of the decision. But uh, I think it's a slippery slope, David, because so uh, uh, Governor Hochul said, OK, we want to put $35 million aside of taxpayer money uh, to expand uh, access to abortion in New York State. For example, uh, she wants to put, I think, $10 million of those funds towards security and reproductive health centers. Fine. That's completely understandable. OK, the other $25 million, we haven't got the details on that. She wants it to use it to expand abortion access, whatever that means, uh, hiring more people in abortion clinics. Or I could see either her or some maybe uh, the, uh, the liberals that control the state legislature for the new budget cycle putting money aside to uh, give to not-for-profits. So it's not directly going to uh, Sally Jones in Louisiana to come to New York, but it's going to go to a not-for-profit, taxpayer money going to a New York State taxpayer-funded uh, not-for-profit, and then they will give the money to, to women. So either way, I don't want New York State taxpayers to have to pay for abortions for women who do not reside in New York State. Well, how would this bill affect, if at all, women who could afford to come to New York and afford to pay for uh, an abortion on their own? Well, then that, that is their right. And so we have different uh, potential situations. For example, uh, a woman coming from Louisiana can either, maybe she works for a company that's willing to pay for it. I heard that Disney, Google, Apple, some other com companies have agreed to, to pay for their employees to come to New York or other states to obtain abortions. That's their right. Or maybe uh, Mike Bloomberg or 10 other billionaires want to create a private fund with their own money to pay for these women. That's their right too. It's their money. I'm just talking about protecting New York State taxpayers from having to pay from women to women to come into the state to receive their abortions. Any qualms, though, about essentially limiting access to abortion then to people who could afford to pay for it uh, on their own by essentially saying, uh, you know, if you can't afford to make it to New York, you're out of luck? Well, out of luck is a, is a relative term. I mean, uh, you know, I, 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 these women certainly have rights to obtain abortions. And uh, if someone can afford it, I assume they're going to do it themselves or have a family member or a friend or company uh, that would do it or a privately funded uh, a, a fund. Um, I'm just talking about saying, all right, New York State taxpayer, we have the, the highest taxes in the entire country. And people are always complaining about our taxes. And many people are leaving the state because of it. Oh, by the way, we have a new thing we want to fund from Albany. And that's abortions for women who don't even li live in this state, uh, which are going to come up to hundreds of millions of dollars of your taxpayer money. And this could be the straw that broke the camel's back in terms of people uh, leaving the state. I mean, it's, it, our taxes are high enough. We don't need to find new things to, to pay for abortions for women who don't reside in New York State. If someone was, say, visiting New York State and let's say there was some sort of medical emergency that required an abortion and they couldn't foot the bill, would they just have to get sent to another state? I mean, how would you envision their care being uh, handled if uh, your bill became law? Well, I think that uh, there's different situations like that. If it's an emergency situation, situation, obviously, there can be exceptions in this. I'm just talking about a woman who's in another state that restricts or bans abortions coming to New York State, either flying or driving, hotel stay, the abortion procedure, and then going back home to wherever they live 
there's different ways of funding that. I just do not want the New York State taxpayers to be on the, the hook for that. And I can tell you, David, I've spoken to people on all sides of this, this debate. Um, the obviously pro-life people are opposed to it, the moderates uh, or, or who support abortion rights, or, but that's not a, a huge issue for them, and very pro-choice people. I've spoken to many of them since I was working on this bill, some people who are very upset about the Roe versus Wade decision, very pro-choice. And I always ask them, so what about, what about us paying your, your taxpayer money going to fund someone, a woman coming from another state? They're all like, nope, uh, that, that's too far. I, I can tell you that having spoke to over 100 people, two of them have said they, don't, they would support that. So even the real pro-choice people, if you will, oppose the idea of New York State taxpayers paying for woman abortions for non-residents of New York. Putting aside uh, the fiscal implications that you've outlined, any reservations about potentially being, I don't know, on the wrong side of history? Uh, I think there's no question that this is the right side of history. And I'm not talking about the abortion debate. Obviously, people feel strongly on, on all sides. I'm just talking about requiring New York state taxpayers to fund abortions for women who don't live there. If they want to, right now, the Democrats control the White House and both branches of the United States Congress, if they want to create a federal fund, you know, not including the state legislature's money, they can do it. Go ahead. You know, that's their prerogative. But I'm just talking about a state legislators watching out for New York state taxpayers. And that's what this bill is about. And I think it's the right side of history. Well, we've been speaking with State Senator Phil Boyle. He is a Long Island Republican. Senator, thank you so much for making the time. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much, David. Senator Boyle's bill was referred to the Senate Rules Committee on June 29th. It faces a tough road ahead in the state's Democratic majority state Senate and Assembly. And that's it for this week's New York Now. Have a great week and be well.